So Pat mentioned earlier, and he, and he, he wasn't kidding. I, you know, one of the nice things about having a Saturday night service now is that I get to try out my sermon on an unsuspecting crowd before I get to you guys. And last night as I was, as I was going through it, I just felt like, wow, this is just, eh, I didn't know. And so I was talking to Pat afterward, and, and Pat made a good point. He said, you know, the text before us this week is really hard. It's really hard to understand. And, and I put a ton, I'm not saying this for any reason, just that it's true. I put a ton into this message that we're, I'm about to give you, a lot of study and made sure I got the text down and how to explain it and all of that, but it's still a, a difficult text. And so here's the best illustration I can give you, and maybe this will help you as we go along this morning. Uh, many of you watch movies. I know you do, and, and, and you've been a connoisseur of movies over the years. And there's a huge difference between what's required to watch, say, Mary Poppins as a movie, and what you would be required in watching, say, Chariots of Fire or Shadowlands, the story of C.S. Lewis's life, as a movie. Both are great movies, Mary Poppins and Shadowlands or Chariots of Fire, but they require a little something different from you. In other words, you don't have to think at all when you watch Mary Poppins, right, with Dick Van Dyke singing and all that. I mean, it's not a hard movie to watch. But I can remember watching Chariots of Fire and Shadowlands years ago and thinking it takes a little more from me when I watch it. I'm glad I watched it. It's a great movie. Both of them are. It's just i got to think a little bit more and try to stay tuned that when I watch those than I would, say, with Mary Poppins or, if you've never seen Mary Poppins, Die Hard or something like that. You don't need to think in watching a Bruce Willis movie. None of them. And, and so that's what I'm trying to say. But today, you're going to have to think as we go through the next 35 minutes. I, I need you to try to put on your thing, because I will promise this to you, if you can get to the end of this, it, it will be life-giving for your soul, because God's Word is always that way once we understand it and live it, okay? So let's pray, and we're going to dive right in. Father, I do thank you for your Word this morning, Lord. Even the difficult passages that we get to, Lord, are very much worth parking in front of and for our souls God, trying to understand what they say so that we can know you and follow you and honor you. So I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would give us wisdom right now and insight so that we might understand what you have said to us. And then, Lord, our commitment back is to live what you reveal to us, live what we understand as we follow you throughout the week with our very lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here is one thing that I have learned in life, and you have learned this too, and that is that for every stated premise that somebody might make, there's almost always a pushback. For every stated premise that somebody makes, there's almost always a pushback. So, for instance, if somebody says that the new Superman movie is an awesome movie and you should go see it, there's always going to be somebody who says, nah, it's not all that good, it's not worth it. In fact, I haven't seen the movie yet, but I've been reading the reviews, and that's precisely what's happening. If somebody states that the Democrats are right and that our country should provide health care for everybody, even at the cost of the taxpayers, there's obviously going to be some who push back on that and say, nah, that's not good for our country. If somebody puts forth that the Chicago Cubs are due for a pennant, or that the Cleveland Browns are due for a Super Bowl trophy, there's going to be pushback on that where somebody says, nah, I've looked at their team rosters and there is no team strength and they're not due for that at all. 
If somebody says that Abraham Lincoln was the best president that ever existed, there's going to be pushback. Others will say, no, it was George Washington. You get the idea. You and I experience this all the time in life that once a premise is out there, even a strong and robust premise, there's almost always a legitimate pushback. And though sometimes pushbacks are silly and simply a way for an antagonist to argue with you, many times, however, they are not. They are legitimate ways to engage in meaningful conversation about difficult and complicated subjects. Pushbacks almost always help clarify and test the strength and cogency of the premise that it's pushing back on. They help us know whether the original premise is really true and can stand up under some scrutiny. And so one of the things that I love about the Bible is that there are times when the Bible is making a very, very strong and eternally significant point, a point that even comes from Almighty God himself, and then it allows a pushback on this same point as a way of testing its truth and testing its mettle. The Bible actually does this. It engages in an internal exercise of entertaining an antagonist's pushback as a way of truly testing and proving the original premise. And though the Bible doesn't do this all the time, you look, there's numerous times where it does do this, and it's actually very healthy and life-giving when it does this. And so once you understand this, you're ready to look at the next few sentences in the New Testament book of Galatians, the book that we're studying this year at Scottsdale Bible, because after giving us a clear and powerful premise in the middle of chapter 2 that we looked at last week, the next few verses now entertain a pushback that some just might have to this premise. I want to show you what I mean. You will notice on your outlines this morning, in Cactus and Venue, hopefully you have outlines too, or you can look up here on the screen, that I've broken down chapter 2 of Galatians, verses 17 to 19, into three understandable parts. Because this is a difficult passage. And I've broken it down into a premise, a pushback, and a proof. A premise that is put forth that repeats what verse 16 said, and then a pushback on that that we'll get to in a minute, and then an answer to the pushback in the form of practical proofs that prove the original premise. So so if you're confused already, let me walk you through this, and and you will see what I mean. Uh, So first, notice with me the premise that is on the table here in chapter 2, and it's this. Look up here on the screen, and that is that a person is justified before God by faith alone in Jesus Christ apart from works of the law. We learned this last week, and this is without a doubt the premise that God, through the Apostle Paul, is putting forth to us here in Galatians 2, really in the entire book. So again, look at verse 16, the verse right before the passage that we're looking at today, and how it recaps this. It says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And then reading the very next verse, verse 17, it restates this premise in a very truncated form when it says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ. So real quickly, here's what this passage is saying and what we learned last week. 
If you remember last week, if you were here, and I don't assume you were because this is Phoenix in summer, but this will be a quick recap for you, is that we defined four words for you last week. And those were the words justified, and then works or law, and then we defined faith or belief because it uses those interchangeably, and then we obviously defined Jesus Christ. And I submitted to you last week that if you could understand these four words and exactly what they mean, then you're going to get what Galatians 2 and really the whole book of Galatians is about. So real quickly, I told you that the word justified simply means to be acquitted, to be set free, to be declared not guilty, to be put in a right standing, in this case, with God. Uh, works and law is simply any human-based internal energy that you expend based on some type of moral standard, whether from the Old Testament law or your own conscience. It's your own energy to try to do good things. Faith and belief is simply a confidence that you have in something to the point of fully trusting. And then Jesus Christ, obviously, is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Savior of humankind. Now watch this. Here's all Galatians 2 is saying. That when it comes to you and I being justified before God, here's how it works. You got to cross out works and law. You can't earn your salvation. You simply take the faith and belief that you have, you place it in Jesus Christ, and the Bible says that as soon as you place your confidence and trust in Jesus Christ apart from works, God justifies you in his presence. Isn't that amazing? It's the gospel message. That it's as clear as the noonday sun that it's through faith in Jesus Christ, confidence and trust in the Son of God, apart from any good works, because you can't earn your salvation, that we are justified, that we become justified before God. And folks, the logic of this understanding of God and the spiritual life is simply this. You don't want to miss this. And that is that good works, as good and right as they are, do not have the power nor the capacity to bridge the gap that exists between us and God because of our sin. That's the whole point. That God is up here holy and good. We are down here not so holy and good. And so no amount of good works, whether based on the Old Testament law or even your conscience, can ever make up for the distance that exists between God and humanity. And, and so some were wondering, why did I put this workout bench here? And, uh, and that's a good question. I, I just want to try to give you another a simple analogy in what the Bible is trying to say here. Uh, many of you are familiar with a workout bench. We use this to get in shape, at least oh, so I'm told. And, <laughs> and, and there's about 105 pounds on this bench right now. And I know you're going to laugh at this, but I'm not going to lift it because I could. I could. I do work out, and I lift a lot more than this, but I don't want to expend the energy right now. I want to save it for intellectual capital that I'm passing on to you. But here's my point. My guess is if we had a weightlifting contest here right now, some of you would be able to lift this 105 pounds, and others of you could lift more, and others of you could lift less. So for some of you, we'd take off these weights here on the side, and you probably could lift the bar itself. And then there's others of you that we could put two, maybe 250 pounds on here, and you'd be able to bench press that. 
When I was in college, the linemen for our college football team, some of them could bench 400 pounds, which is a tremendous amount of weight. So there's a big difference between what you and I can lift when it comes to bench pressing weights. However, here's one thing I do know, and that is that if I was to put 2,000 pounds of weight upon this bar, nobody in this auditorium, nobody at Venue or Cactus, nobody in Scottsdale, nobody in Phoenix, Arizona, the United States, or the world would be able to bench press 2,000 pounds. You would not be able to do it. So though there'd be a big difference between what you and I can bench press, one of the things that we all have in common is that none of us can bench press 2,000 pounds. You're saying, what's the point? God says the same thing in his word. He says that when it comes to morality and good works, in order for you to actually prove your justification before him, it would be like you having to bench press 2,000 pounds. You'd have to live all the Old Testament law, follow your conscience perfectly. You'd have to live up to the standard of his holiness, and that's just not going to happen. But the problem is we tend to compare ourselves to everybody else around us, right? We tend to say, well, because I can bench press more than my neighbor or because I can lift more than my spouse or more than my kids or more than my my best friend or whatever, I must be doing pretty well. And God says, well, yeah, that's great, but you still have one big problem, and that's that you can't bench press enough to please me, to be justified before me. And this is precisely the logic that Galatians is built upon here. That good works based upon our conscience or law can never justify us before God. You can't lift enough good works to meet God. Only faith in Jesus Christ, what he did for you, can justify you before God. So I love how Harry Blumeyers said it so well in the last century. Look up here on the screen. This is great. He said, in the Christian life, nothing, nothing at all can be purchased at the do-it-yourself shop. And that's the point. There is no Home Depot or Lowe's that you can use to renovate your soul enough to please God. So don't even try. Only what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross and your subsequent faith in him is enough to justify you before God, to enter into a relationship with him this side of heaven. And so this is the premise that is out there in Galatians 2, really, in the entire book. So, with this out there, let's turn our attention now to the pushback. Remember, every great premise has a pushback, and it occurs here in Galatians 2. And here it is, and it's in the form of a question. And that is, doesn't abandoning works and law for justification before God end up excusing and promoting sin? I mean, when, I, when you say that one doesn't need to worry about good works for salvation in Christ, that you can rely simply on what Jesus did for you instead of having to do a bunch of good works, doesn't this then give license for someone to just accept Christ and then continue to sin and go on their merry way? And if that can happen, doesn't this then make Jesus and God the prime instigator a promoter of sin. Look look at how verse 17 goes on to present this pushback. Let me read all of verse 17 for you, and then we'll get to the pushback. It says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, now here's the pushback, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? 
Now, now again, that's a confusing phrase, isn't it? Like when you first read that, you go, well, what exactly is he getting at? Let me read for you a couple of the paraphrase translations. The New Living Translation presents this verse this way. But suppose we were to, suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we are found guilty because we have abandoned the law, would that mean that Christ has led us into sin? Or even Eugene Peterson's The Message, I think, is really spot on here. He says, and are you ready to make the accusation that since people like me who go through Christ in order to get things right with God aren't perfectly virtuous, Christ must therefore be an accessory to sin? Are you starting to see? It's an age-old argument, folks. It's a pushback that has been around for 2,000 years and has been regurgitated in every generation since the time of Christ, and it simply puts forth the counterpoint that if in my justification before God, by faith alone in Christ, apart from works, I find that I still sin and can't get over each and every one of them in order to please God, doesn't this somehow then make light of sin? Doesn't this excuse or even promote sin and make Jesus the culprit? I mean, you and I hear it all the time in our discussions with unbelievers and seekers. At least I do. I hear people say, Jamie, this is too easy. It's too ripe for abuse. I got a cousin who claims to have received Christ and his forgiveness, and then he goes out and sins more than I do, and he calls himself a Christian. And you're saying that's the gospel? That Ted Bundy could murder people all of his life and then give a deathbed confession, accept Christ, and find a place in heaven? That Mick Jagger and Howard Stern could do the same thing, let alone somebody like Hitler? That doesn't sound right. It seems like abandoning the law and good works for salvation lets people off kind of easy and actually advances the cause of sin. You see, this is what I think the pushback is that that, that Paul is entertaining here, that God is entertaining in his word. And I would suggest to you that once we understand this, it is a legitimate pushback. It's a good counterpoint for you and I to wrestle with and work through. Because this does occur in life, that when we free up somebody from works and law and through faith in Christ declare them justified, it does open up Pandora's box, doesn't it? It does lead room for risk and abuse. That's why I call this the scandal of grace, because you and I all know people who have abused this idea. And so let's answer, let's look at what Galatians 2 talks about as the answer to this pushback. And though lots of Christians tend to have what they think is an answer to this dilemma before us of what happens, what the risk you run when we have faith in Christ apart from works, I'm more interested in how Galatians 2 answers this. And thankfully, it answers it in two different ways. There's essentially two key things that Galatians responds to its own pushback with Now, don't miss this. And both of them act as proofs of the original premise. Don't miss this. Both act as answers in the form of practical proofs that this counterpoint is not as potent as it might seem and that the original premise, faith alone and Christ alone, is really true. And I'm going to give you both of these proofs right up front right now at the risk that when some of you fill in all the blanks, you tend to tune me out, so don't do that. 
because I do want you to see both of these together, and then we're going to fill in the gaps of our understanding and our time remaining. So bear with me as I go through this, because this is hard to follow, but it is really good theology. It's really worth wading through this. And here are the two proofs right up front. And the first one is, is that works and law are designed to reveal sin, not excuse or promote it. We'll explain that in a second here. And secondly, Galatians is going to say that freedom from the law for justification before God actually leads to righteous living for God, not the other way around. So first, look at how Paul, very interestingly, switching to the first person singular right now. He, he hasn't been in that, in that mode here. He often switches to the first person singular in verse 18 as to show that these are personal proofs of what he has experienced in his life. Look at what he says in verse 18. He says, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now, I got to ask you, what does he mean by this? I mean, what is he arguing here? How is this a response or a proof as he answers the pushback? I think there's an answer to this. I want you to listen closely. The key to understanding what Paul is getting at in this analogy here is to realize, and this is the key, that he's talking about the Old Testament law. That when he says that if he rebuilds what he tore down, he's talking about his relationship with a works-based mentality based upon the law. He's saying that if he were to go back and place himself once again under the Old Testament law and try to justify himself before God by trying to obey all the do's and don'ts, that if he did this, it would only prove what a sinner or transgressor that he really is. Why? Because he would fail at keeping all of the law perfectly. Going back to our weight bench analogy, it would be like putting 2,000 pounds on the bar, him going back, and he wouldn't be able to lift it. If he tried to rebuild what he's already tore down, it's just going to show that he can't, he can't lift it. That's what he's saying here. In a very real sense, he's saying this. He's saying that if you think that justification by faith alone, apart from works, is too easy and leads to sin, then try going back to a works-based mentality or approach to God and see where that gets you. Because I'm telling you, he says, it would lead me right back to a realization of what a sinner I really am. Because when I try to prove myself to God through my good works, it just doesn't work. That's the argument that he's making. He's going to give another one here that I think it might even be stronger. But his point here is, is that when somebody says to us, well, that just seems to be too light on sin, well, then try going back to a works-based mentality with God. And guess what? It won't get you very far. And you got to remember, and this I think is the potency of Paul the Apostle switching to the first person singular here, is that he was really good at keeping the law. He, he really was. I mean, he was a poster child of what a good Pharisee, a good religious leader looks like. As he would say of himself earlier on in Galatians, he says, and I quote, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. In Philippians 3, he said, my reputation when it came to keeping the law was blameless. Interesting choice of words. Not perfect, because nobody kept it perfectly, but again, comparing himself to everybody else around him, he could lift more. And he was blameless in their eyes. 
He was like the Billy Graham of our day or the Mother Teresa of our day when it came to morality. And yet even with all of this going for him, he says that if he was to try to go back and justify himself before God, if he was to build up what he had already tore down by now embracing Jesus, if he was to do this, it would simply show what a sinner he was. Don't miss this. This is his argument in the form of an experiential proof that he lays out here that the gospel doesn't promote sin. It doesn't lead to sin. It doesn't make light of sin. The gospel forgives sin and that the law can only reveal sin. So I love how the great D.L. Moody would say it. Look up here on the screen. This is good. He says, the law tells me how crooked I am. Grace comes along and straightens me out. That's the point. Is that the law, and we're going to look at this in coming months here as Galatians goes on to talk about the law, it's like a, a harsh schoolmaster. That's the analogy we use, leading us to Christ. It's like that nun that you didn't like in Catholic school. It was like my, my first grade teacher, Mrs. Murphy, who was really stern with me. It's like that really tough coach that we didn't really like. That, that's the law. That's the example the Scriptures give us of the law. That, 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 that though it set a high standard for us and it was into morality, it would slap our hand every time we messed up. And we were like, I just can't win. And along comes Jesus. And he says, yes, you can win. Embrace me. And Paul is saying, if you go back to the law, it's just going to show once again that you can't win. So here's the deal, folks. If anyone ever says to you, that the doctrine of justification by faith alone and Christ alone, apart from works, is too easy or too soft because it doesn't make you work for it. And I've had people say that to me. Simply ask them, based on this understanding of Scripture, what working for it has done for them up to this point in their life. Now, that's the practical application of this. Ask them honestly, and don't, I mean, don't be mean here, but just say, do you truly feel closer to God in this works-based religion that you're involved in? Do you honestly feel justified before God by failing to keep the law? Do you honestly think that God is up in heaven giving everybody an A for effort even though we got a D or an F for attainment? I mean, that's the logic here. I ask people, how far has it gotten them, this idea of being on the treadmill trying to please God in your own human strength. Uh, I, you see, once you understand that the law was designed to reveal sin and that the only way we can be justified before God is based on what Christ did, we do realize what a great risk God took here. But logically and practically, it's the only way that we could be in relationship with him is through grace. That's why I called this message the scandal of grace, because it's God's grace apart from works that saves us, but it's the only way God knew that we could find him. If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove that I'm a transgressor. Now, with this first answer in the form of a proof laid out, Paul knows, God knows, that it still does beg the question, okay, I get it. The law reveals sin. Justification by faith alone is the only way. But doesn't this still free up people to be able to sin more and claim Jesus as some eternal fire insurance policy? 
I mean, doesn't this non-works approach to salvation lead to the myriad of individuals who accept Christ apart from works and then really not worry about sin anymore, and they actually do sin more? And we all know people like that, right? Raise your hand if you know somebody like that. Most of you do. Raise your hand if that's you. <laughs> I did that last night. Nobody raised their hand. But the reality is, is that has been you at times. It's been me at times. Can you own it? I can. There have been times where I've been a little bit lax on sin because I know that I'm under grace. It's not a good place to be, but, but I have been there. there. There have been times where I've said, ah, I'm forgiven. I'm not going to worry about it as much. And you've done that too. And that's the pushback here. Well, golly, doesn't that kind of lead to more sin? And after Paul says in verse 17, certainly not, he then goes on to explain this second proof in verse 19. But let me give you the proof before I read you the, the passage. He says that freedom from the law for justification before God actually leads to righteous living for God, not the other way around. Now listen closely. The way that justification by faith alone and Christ alone is supposed to work is that once you and I have come to Christ for salvation, we are supposed to be filled with so much joy and so much freedom at now having been forgiven in Christ that we now want or desire to live righteously for God and we actually end up doing so. That's the way it's supposed to work. Christians are supposed to become more righteous after having come to Christ, not less. The design of grace, God's grace, is designed to draw us to God, the, the spring of living water that we need in order to become the people that he wants us to be, namely more Christ-like. So as Randy Stonehill said so well in one of his songs a few years ago, he says, grace is not a place to wipe your feet. That's the idea. The grace wasn't designed so you can do whatever you want. Grace is designed so that you can come to God. So look at how verse 19 lays this out. By the way, we're now through the tough stuff. This is a really clear verse. This is not hard to understand. He says, for through the law, I died to the law. We've already seen that. Now here it is. So that I might live to God. There it is. We died to the old way of trying to please God through our paltry moral efforts. And now we live to God. Because we've been saved, and we wake up each and every day bathed in prayer, bathed in forgiveness, bathed in grace, ready to become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. So again, I love how Catherine Booth, the wife of William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, once said it in one of her memoirs. Look up here on the screen. This is great. She says, what the law tried to do by a restraining power from without the gospel does by an inspiring power from within. That's the idea. Is you have a choice. You can have this restraining schoolmaster, taskmaster from without saying, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. Or you can have freedom from within through what Jesus provides for you and wake up each day and have this inspiring power from within in order to live the life that God wants you to live. And so this is the answer. It's a practical proof that you really are his and that you get the gospel, that you got the Holy Spirit living in you now and you become a better man, a better woman, more righteous, more loving, more holy, not by trying to earn your salvation through good works, but rather coming to God on the terms of grace and then through relating to him through faith, his power changes you over time. 
We don't have time to go into this. I really wish we did. But uh, write this passage down. Romans chapter 6, verses 17 to 23. Cactus venue, write that down. Romans 6, verses 17 through 23. I'm going to put the scripture on the screen, but I can't read it for sake of time. But in a condensed version, this is what it says, and it is so cool. It says that before you came to Christ, you were a slave of sin. Use that phrase twice. You were a slave to sin. But interestingly, when you then came to Christ, you are now a slave of righteousness and a slave of God. Isn't that an interesting illustration that it uses? It's basically saying that when you came to Christ, it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card to do whatever you want. No, when you came to Christ, you simply switched sides. You changed allegiances. You're still a slave. It's just you're not a slave to your sin anymore. You're a slave to Jesus, and you're a slave to his call on your life. And though we're going to talk in more detail next week, and it's a great verse, verse 20, on how we can walk with God in such a way as to become more transformed into the likeness of Christ, simply realize for now that God's plan for saving us through faith alone is designed to foster a changed life, a, a, a growth in godliness and goodness, not the other way around. And the only question that comes up at this point, and I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want to be misunderstood, but I know the pushback at this point. Again, for every premise, there's a pushback. I know the pushback at this point, and that is people say, well, I get it, Jamie. Grace is supposed to change us, but, but what about for people that it doesn't? What do you do with the person in the pew who says they've accepted Christ? and then they don't change. They're not more loving. They're not more holy. They, 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 they just don't seem to grow. What, what do you do about that? I got to tell you, I, I wrestle with this one. I've, I have a, a love-hate relationship with this issue because I have a theological answer and then I have a pastoral answer. My, 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 my pastoral answer I'm going to give you first, and that's that my pastoral answer is simply that we all grow in many different ways, we all grow on different timelines, and that one thing I've learned in 25 years of pastoral ministry, 30 years of being a Christian, is that I need to be very careful who I judge because my growth has simply been about stumbling forward for 30 years. And there are times where I wish I was a lot further along, and that makes me more humble in my judgment of somebody else. And so one thing I don't like is when a Christian is hurting and he's beaten down and and, and, and he's kind of on the ground and, and, and just, just really down and out. And, 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 and somebody, a well-meaning Christian, will come along and say, are you sure you're saved? I don't see much fruit. You're really hurting right now. And I sit there and go, well, that doesn't seem very Jesus-like. I, I just don't think that's the way Jesus would respond to us when we're hurting, to, to doubt our salvation. And so pastorally, I tend to apply a lot of grace Somebody comes to me and says, you know, I'm really hurting, I'm backslidden, I'm struggling. The first thing I say is not, well, are you saved? I, I usually say, well, let's talk about that. Where are you at with Jesus? How are you doing? How can I help you grow? I, you know, things like that. At the same time, I have good theology, I really do. And I will tell you this, that if somebody says that they're saved, that they've been justified before God by faith alone, and there's no fruit, there's no change, then good theology would say you got to wonder whether they really get the gospel. I defined faith last week very clearly. I don't know if you remember this. Faith is a confidence 
that then places trust in. Faith is saying, I have confidence that this chair can hold me, and I trust it so much, I'm going to sit in it. And so what God says is that when you do that, when you sit on the chair of Jesus Christ, he will change you. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Remember this, Galatians 5. We'll get it to this next fall. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those are the fruits of the Spirit. And in the absence of any fruit at all, you do have to wonder if you get the gospel. That's a good question to ask. I just don't think we need to use it as a club pastorally on people when they're hurting. Do you see the difference there? But good theology says that God saved you to change you, and in the absence of any change, you do got to wonder where you are with God. One closing illustration, and then we're going to be done. Uh, last night, I, I had to run out after I did the evening service because I was asked to speak at uh, the Alliance Defending Freedom headquarters to a bunch of lawyer wannabes. And they are first, second-year law students, about 150 of them, going through the Blackstone Fellowship at, at, at ADF. And it's a premier, wonderful program. And these are the creme de la creme of law students from Harvard and Yale and Regent College, all different places, that have come to Phoenix here in this wonderful weather in order to engage in two weeks of seminars, and then they're going to do a few weeks of internship. And I was asked to speak to them about how they can be really good lawyers and really good Christians in the marketplace. So I put together a talk on that for them last night. As many of you know, my dad is a lawyer, but my dad's not an evangelical Christian. And the reason I can say that is he considers himself a Christian, but he's a Christian of a more liberal ilk. And the reason I can say that is because when we get together quarterly and we argue, he always reminds me that he, he loves the Gospels and he thinks Paul was wrong. And I go, how can you do that? I mean, you, you can't do that to the Bible. You can't just say that I, I like what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say, but I don't think Paul was, I mean, you know, it's just, so we have very interesting conversations. <laughs> so I was talking to my dad this week, and he's a very sharp lawyer all of his life, and, uh, and he's, he is a very religious man, and, and as I was talking to my dad, I told him I'm speaking to a bunch of lawyers, or lawyer wannabes, on, a, on, on, on Saturday night, and they talked to them about how they can be Christians and, and really good lawyers at the same time very fascinating response my dad had, and I asked him if I could share this with you guys, and he said, I could. He said to me, he said, well, he's 79, he said, in all my experience, I don't think you can be a good lawyer and love people like Jesus loved at the same time. He said, I think it's absolutely impossible. And it was funny, because I, I, I do this my dad all the time, I, I, I didn't push back, I just said, well, did you? I said, were you a really good lawyer, and did you love people like Jesus loved? And he was real quick on his response. He said, no, not at all. He said, because as a lawyer, you've got to represent a client with passion and intellectual integrity, whether you are, are, are believe what they believe or not. And he said, you've got to represent that client, and you've got to be brutal with the other side. And he said, and you've got to be tough, and that, that is not always like the life Jesus would live. And he said, if you don't do that, you risk disbarment. I said, well, Dad, I'm not going to tell that to these lawyers. You know, I said, I, I, I'm not going there. So, you know, my dad and I agreed years ago to walk sensitively around the issues. So I got out of that one as quickly as I could with him. But as I got off the phone, I thought to myself, and I've told my dad this before, I just don't agree with that. I don't. I, I don't think that God would set up the kind of world in which we could not be in the world, but still not be of it. 
I, I think God has made it so that though it's difficult for us as followers of Jesus to live the Jesus life in all the settings we have, that he wouldn't call you to the setting that you're in if you couldn't do it. Does that make sense? Now, now again, that might mean that it will cost you. I mean, maybe a lawyer would get disbarred for living like Jesus. Maybe a doctor would get canned for praying with, 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 with patience. I don't know. But all I know is that when it comes to what God wants for our lives, <laughs> he would much rather have you live in the balm of his grace, live for him each moment of each day, and he said you can do it, and then let the chips fall where they will, than to ever use some measly excuse that, that I just, you know, I, I just couldn't do it because it might affect my life too much. Oh, come on. He's bigger than that, and he's better than that. And that I did share with the lawyers last night, that, that, that they had the opportunity to walk with God as lawyers all the days of their life. Every premise has a pushback. Faith alone in Christ alone is what saves you. But doesn't this promote and excuse sin? No, it doesn't. Because if you want to try it, go back and put yourself under law, and you're simply going to realize what a sinner you are. And even more so, the gospel isn't designed as a license for you to sin. It's designed as a license for you to become more like Jesus. And that's what we're doing as a church. Why don't you pray with me? Father, thank you for the teaching of your word. Thank you that, Lord, when we're willing to, to go a little bit below the surface and wrestle with its truth and its application, that we find it life-giving for our souls. And, Lord, I know for me this week I am fired up to live for your son, Jesus Christ, to, to lay my life before him so that I might see more and more fruit of your Holy Spirit working in and through my life. So God, would you do that? And would you do that for these dear people and for Cactus and Venue? God, would you just continue to chip away at our character three steps forward, two steps backward as you call us more and more to the Jesus life. So God, thank you for grace. Thank you for the fact that grace not only frees up, but that it motivate us, motivates us and constrains us toward Jesus Christ. And continue to do that, we pray. In Jesus' holy and precious name, and we all say together, amen. God bless you. We'll see you next Sunday.